Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy Playbook, the podcast all about our tricky relationship with stuff and how to fix it. I'm Ali Moore, Head of Communications and Behaviour Change at Re London, and I'm delighted to be joined today by the very excellent Rachel Singer, who works in our research team at Re London and coincidentally has spent the last year or so working on textiles data. So she's brilliantly qualified for this episode. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ali. Great to be here for this one. Always excited to hear about innovators who are leading the field in circular textile solutions. Yes, me too. And the business founder we're talking to today actually comes from a a proper family background of fashion innovation. So do you want to do a a quick intro to today's interviewee, Rachel? Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking to Nish Perak, who's the founder of CAPTA. And I hadn't realized that CAPTA means cloth in Sanskrit. So there's a whole interesting origin story, which Nish is going to get into. But CAPTA has a quite strong niche, if you like, in the textile sector and is increasingly looking at diversifying into other parts of the supply chain which normally don't get a lot of spotlight on. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of what he's working with is kind of behind the scenes stuff um, and things which have technical challenges associated, things which desperately need fixing, like how do you turn waste fabric and clothing that's genuinely damaged and can't be used again, for instance, as clothing into something else that's really useful? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of which we've been helping him with through our business transformation team here at ReLondon is what I hear. Yeah, that's right. And he talks a little bit about that, actually, in the interview, and we'll come back to it. So let's hear from today's guest, Nish Parekh, founder of CAPTA, the offcut company based in Kingston-upon-Thames. So CAPTA is a really interesting company doing some great things. Can you tell me a little bit about how you originally set it up and what your main purpose and motivation was when you got it started? So my background is in advertising. I used to work for Saatchi and Saatchi and Agilvy handling brands like Vodafone and Unilever. And I always had a bit of a sort of a challenge in me to say, it'd be great to create a brand from scratch. So that was one of the motivations in the back of my mind. And secondly, my mum's a fashion designer. She has high street shops in Mumbai. And so, of course, I've been off cut all my life. But once I visited her post my master's, I saw that these offcuts were just lying around in her studio. You know, offcuts are basically leftover materials after your dresses and your tops and your sofas are created. So they just just brand new materials but smaller pieces. And we decided to put our heads together and we cut like two rectangular pieces and we pasted them together and it became our first offcut product, which was a bookmark. Then I just left, they came back, the life carried on. And a couple of months later, I got a call from my mom and she said, actually, these bookmarks are selling, let alone be used for customer purchase gifts. That's when I thought maybe my passion of creating a brand from scratch and, you know, being in the sustainable sector, which I wanted to be in, is probably this is it. So that's how it all started. Interesting. And where's the name Kapta come from? So Kapta means clock in Sanskrit. So my mom's brand name should be Kapta. So if you visited her store, it was all created from fabric offcuts and so fabrics themselves as well. Like the lampshades were fabric. The hangers were all covered with fabric. Even on the floor, there was a lot of fabric with glass on the top. And even to an extent that uh, business cards, their invoices were made out of fabric as well. Nice. So 
I just decided that I would carry on with the same name and add the offcut company to it because we deal with offcuts and of course I'm the offcut from her as well. So it's like the whole uh, <laughs> the uh, advertising person in me sort of came up and said, yeah, we can do that. And I said, look, could I use your name, you know, the, the brand name? And she was kind enough to say, hey, you can use it as your inheritance. I was like, okay. <laughs> That's really nice. But you're based in London, right? And she's still in Mumbai? Yeah, she's now decided to retire. But she does help out here and there in terms of her experience. But um, we are based in London. And you've clearly diversified from those original bookmarks over the past few years, a few different product streams and a few different sectors. Is that right? Have you started moving into a bit of built environment as well as the fashion and accessories sectors? Yes. So we are predominant business in the past five, six years have been working with fashion designers to reuse their fabric offcuts and create things like bookmarks, tote bags, pouches, any presentation folders, anything where we can reuse their smaller pieces, larger pieces into more uh, sort of day-to-day purposeful products. And we've then moved away, sort of added on other products for other sectors as well. For example, we've just done a collaboration with a restaurant to create menu covers from the wallpaper offcuts, which they had left over after they redecorated their place. We've worked with a shoe company and we've reused their sort of small pieces of fabrics as well as their shoelaces to create different products from them as well. And yes, you touched upon a new sector, which we've been researching in the past six, eight months, is working with post-consumer waste and converting into new fibers and using them for various applications. We're still in the research process, so it's quite new to us because so far we always focus on pre-consumer waste. We've never worked on post-consumer, but we're working with a couple of universities with the help of AI and tech to see what we can do on a large scale within UK. And what are the different challenges with that post-consumer waste compared to the pre-consumer? The post-consumer waste, the biggest challenge to recycle them is to know which composition is the garment made of. Right. And seven out of 10 times, the label in your garment is actually incorrect, which says it's 20% cotton, 80% wool. That's not the correct composition. Wow. So at the moment, it's the biggest challenge to make sure that we get them correct because to recycle anything, let alone textiles, you need to know the composition or what's already in the original product. Only then you can break it down. So at the moment, we're developing a machine with Kingston Uni to try and work out the composition of every single garment in any state and any size it can be. I'm sure I've seen at a textile reprocessing place in London, I'm sure I've seen a scanner item that you can put fabrics underneath and it will tell you roughly what the balance of fibres is. Yes, there are a couple of handheld scanners available which are made in the UK. The drawback of them is they only go as low as two compositions. Okay. So anything below 20%, they won't do it. Ah. And it's still a manual process. So what we're trying to do is getting a bit more automated because the scale of the waste we have in the UK and the cost is too high. So even now, there are low containers full of stuff sent to various countries on a monthly basis from the UK for a sort of post-consumer waste, which isn't sort of suitable or feasible where, you know, our developing countries need to get our waste. We need to make sure that we have facilities to recycle our own waste in this country. 
Yeah. I know there was a, a pilot that our business transformation team here at ReLondon was supporting you on. Is that the same pilot, the recycling fabric pilot? Yes. And I put my hand up and say I underestimated the amount of uh, moving parts in this recycling and coming up with this technology. We first thought that, you know, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. But when you start working on it, it becomes very difficult, as I said, even to read the composition. As I said, there are limitations of what's currently available in the market and, you know, how we can move forward with it. So, of course, the ReLondon team helped out in the initial stages. And what we were planning to achieve, of course, we are on that track, but we underestimated the amount of time it would take. So, for example, because the project was only three to six months, uh, which we thought would be enough, but, you know, working with universities and testing at every stage, of course, takes a bit longer. Again, something what we're new to, so, you know, we weren't experts in it. But you're going to continue with it? It is already ongoing. We haven't stopped. We have been self-funding it throughout in the past one year, even after the whole Green London project was over. I mean, so that's, you know, some of the challenges around post-consumer across the board. What are the challenges of building an entire business model around a waste stream, whether that's pre or post-consumer? And what's the good things? What are the opportunities about it? So when we started around 2015, a lot of brands which we were approaching, they were a bit sceptical to see that they had to give us their material or offcuts or end of rolls or their waste, pre-consumer waste. And then we would create something and they would have to pay for it. Because they were like, we are giving you our own waste and why do we pay for it, you know, to create into new product. But as time has passed by, we've been fortunate enough to work with some really big and well-known brands in fashion, in interiors, in mills. And also everyone's moving towards sustainability. You know, when we started in 2015, it wasn't a buzzword. It wasn't what people were talking about, whether it's consumers or businesses. There wasn't enough pressure from the government for them to do things. Uh, but of course, now, you know, in 2023, you know, every single business, be it one band band or the largest sort of a group, they all are looking at sustainability and how they can improve. So the challenge, of course, was to explain our business initially. And now the advantage is at this stage is that we've already been through that difficult phase. We've had more than 300 plus clients. And now people are talking about sustainability. So, you know, it becomes a bit more easier proposition compared to what it used to be five, six years ago. It feels to me from an immediate look at the kind of thing that you do that that it might be kind of lots of small one-off projects, quite kind of short runs on things. Is that right? Is it kind of smaller projects and smaller contracts that you're picking up? Or have you got kind of really bigger ones which are ongoing, kind of regular production ones? So what we do is because the source is textile waste, so even designers sometimes may have 10 meters, sometimes may have two boxes full of small pieces. And then the next season, it may be, you know, 25 meters with like 10 boxes. So for them as well, it's difficult to plan. So keeping that in mind, we do flexible, smaller projects where, you know, keeping in mind what kind of waste they've received this season and what we can do out of it. The advantage is that they keep coming back because, you know, once you have proven that, you know, you take care of their fabrics, you give them quality, what is good enough for them to then give ahead as giveaways or customer purchase gifts or as marketing presents at trade shows and fashion shows, you know, that gives them a bit more confidence. 
and then they come back and say, okay, now we've done the journals a lot season. How about we do some pouches or some bags and so on and so forth? Then they're a bit more open about what other different offcuts they have as well. No company is always going to open the door and say, here's all our waste. Can you have a look? It's always a step by step process. But it presumably makes it quite difficult for you to plan longer term as well. Uh, yes, it is. But that's the reason we have, you know, a lot of clients. And also they keep recommending us to others. That's our biggest source of new clients is recommendation. Oh, that's nice. Um, Which is a good confidence booster for us because we've done something right that someone is recommending us. Or they're putting it on their social media or their website, the case studies with our name on it. And also every product we create, it's a collaboration. So we have our name on every single journal, for example. So it will be ex-designer and then there's a collaboration with Kampta to create this. And, you know, that itself is that if, a, if someone's paying and plus happy to have our name at the back, you know, there's something right we're doing. Of course, they are the ones who asked us to start looking into post-consumer waste as well. So, you know, that shows that they are happy for us to get involved and get involved to see what they have and how we can help out in more ways. And what have been some of your favourite partnerships and collaborations, some of your best projects? Oh, it's always a difficult question, isn't it? Depends on who's listening. (laughs) 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 Of course, a well-known one is when we worked with Selfridges to celebrate sustainability at London Fashion Week. And they had the dresses of four or five designers they were selling on the second floor. And then we had the offcuts to make the journals which were sold on the ground floor. So that was sort of a good way. Similarly, we've done with Wolf and Badger, National Portrait Gallery. We then worked with the Met Museum for Met Gala with Mary Catronzo. We've then worked plenty of times with Christopher Rayburn, with Morrison Cole, Evelyn Murray, Dax London. So the list is sort of goes on. But favorite is always like, depends because it, it's like a candy shop. You open a box and you don't know what to expect. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes you work with like mills in Scotland or then we work with hand weavers in Paris. Some of the laces which come to us to recreate, you would be surprised. They're like, they sell for two, three hundred pound a meter. Wow. So even when you get the off cut of it, you have to be very careful. Yeah. That you're not using them incorrectly. So yeah, it's a challenge. Every time we get a box, even if it's the same client, they'll always have different materials. And how do you measure your impact in sustainability terms? when you're doing this? Do you do sort of weights and measures or carbon calculations or how do you do it? So what we've done is we know how much material we require for each of our products. We've then basically multiplied all the products we've created so far in the past few years. And then that's the material we have stopped from going to landfill. So far, the last number we had was we were 10,000 meters plus which we had used to create new products. So we've, in principle, we've saved 10,000 meters going to landfill. Amazing. And then presumably there's a carbon calculation you can do on the back of that with a kind of rough carbon figure? It depends because some of some of our clients do their own shipping. Yeah. Some of them we get involved. Some of them is sea freight. Some of them is air freight. But we're starting to now calculate it in a different way. We just partnered up with an organization called Blue Patch. They're an NGO and they've got this new calculator, which I was just introduced to recently. And they do the tier one, tier two and tier three for level one, one, two and three. So, you know, direct impact, indirect impact. And we're going to start putting our data into it to then, you know, over a period of um, one sort of few quarters, we'll start getting some results out. 
But what we've done in the past is where we've had authority to do the shipping to all our clients. We've had an electric van come and pick up everything here and then, you know, drop it off everywhere in London where it needs to. I think we had our first electric van in 2017. And I remember the driver ringing me like at seven o'clock in the evening and saying, I you know, this was the last package. And I was like, why? And he's like, I've run out of juice. Oh, no. <laughs> at that point, there weren't as many charging points easily available. Yeah, yeah. But now it's very different. So, yeah, that's the sort of in brief of how we calculate in terms of numbers. But other things, what we do is all our packaging is made from cornstarch. So it's 100% biodegradable. And all the brown boxes we use, we just pick up from the skip next door. <laughs> we never go and buy brown boxes. Brilliant. It's as simple as that. <laughs> I applaud you. That's brilliant. So over the past few years, obviously, like COVID must have caused some disturbance along the way. How did it impact your brand and how did you adapt and change what you were doing during COVID? Oh, we were a few who had just signed up and received our first round of funding a month before COVID. And out of four investors, uh, three of them had also paid in. But one of them pulled out last minute a fund. Of course, we were moving into a larger office. We had around um, three people new starting on 1st of April. Contracts were signed. So we were right there, you know, trying to say, okay, we're pushing it now. We've got a whole team sorted, extra people in. And suddenly everything, you know, fell apart. And uh, of course, like everyone, the first two or three months was impossible to plan. Then we started working towards it to create models on how we can approach our regular clients, you know, how we can help them because they weren't doing any events or shows. So, you know, for them, giveaways was a problem. You know, they didn't need products to be made. And what would they do with products because they weren't selling things online either because they're all luxury or giveaways kind of a thing. So we sort of adapted more into the research phase as well. You know, we sort of said, okay, let's try and do, let's sort of take, take a step back and focus on research, as well as we were donated and some companies shut down, so they donated a lot of materials to us. And we sort of adapted to say, okay, let's try a business-to-consumer side of the model, where we could create products and sell directly to consumers. Because we get donations on a regular basis from various people, like British Red Cross recently donated us some curtains and so on, and they were like, you know, do what you like, because they cannot sell it it was split on one side or they were just not in the form to resell them. So we then created things like tote bags and so on, which are quite cool uh, because you can reuse the lining as well. So that's what we focused on. And we said, okay, you know, this is, because this is in our hands, we don't have to worry about, you know, waiting for a client to give us the materials. And that's how we adapted to it. We tried to do online sort of sales of, for example, you know, e-commerce was started. And on the other side, our normal business-to-business working with brands had slowed down. We did have a couple of our team members because we, of course, carried on. We didn't completely stop. So the challenge at that point was they weren't able to get through their regular clients as well because people were not in office. Some people, you know, had been let go. So it was a big challenge for us, at least for four to six months. So only in 21, sort of April-ish, we started going back to what we used to do. And has anything permanently changed for you as a result of the pandemic? Have you kept that direct-to-consumer business going? Uh, Yes, we did. And we just had our first pop-up shop over Christmas in Kingston-upon-Thames as well. Lovely. How did that go? It was great. I mean, you know, it's 
course it's hard work i underestimated it <laughs> yeah we run pop-ups they are hard work definitely yeah i mean i used to work in retail when i was a student but that was you know i just to get some extra cash but then now when it's your entire business you need to work out the leases the contracts and you know got to be there you know speak to people so the overall response was great because we ran some free workshops where we taught kids and adults how to reuse things like wallpaper or fabrics and make decorative stuff out of it which they could use it for christmas so they didn't have to go and buy any stuff we then invited local artists to come in and showcase a few things as well so we were trying to make a bit more a sort of a, a local space and we supported a few causes as well so for example the local rowing club was raising money for their disabled access list so anyone who bought from us who were supporters of the rowing club we would sort of donate 20% back to them similar to the cricket club and similar to refugee centers so what we wanted to work on a model was that you know rather than paying the larger companies to market on social media we thought if we can keep the money local it'd be quite great because you can support a school we supported the rowing club the cricket club and you know people passed on the message that we were a shop and we didn't do any marketing as such except for putting it on our instagram but it was great people were recommending us even in a short stint of like 7 weeks we had loads of people coming in and passing our message as well to other people so something interesting so what's next for you guys at capta are you going to focus on just one or two of your the propositions you've got going at the moment uh, or the business models that you're doing at the moment or are you going to stay quite diverse where do you think your future lies we've done a whole list of pros and cons like every business should do we currently have three avenues you know one is the business to business working with designers second is the business to consumer which i just told you about the e-commerce and the pop-up shop and the third is of course research into the post consumer wise So I have made a list of pros and cons and on Monday we have our meeting with shareholders and a sort of board and to discuss it to say you know where do you think the most effort should be put in whether all avenues or one or two and depending on that we will then plan but I'm quite passionate about the post consumer waste because our aim is that we as a country need to be self sufficient for our own waste it's not fair on sending our waste what we consume to other countries and then then be responsible to discard them which i think is very unfair so that's the main focus and of course we coming up with new products at every sort of month depending on the various shapes and sizes we receive with the fabric waste as well so yeah it's not a very straightforward answer just yet <laughs> to say which way we're going because at the moment it's it's a little overlapping because it's the same clients but they just have different needs now you know of what they're looking for so we will still stick to textile waste let's put it that way so do you think you could end up potentially in future running like a mechanical textile reprocessing plant that just takes post consumer waste and churns out kind of reusable fibers on the other end uh probably yes <laughs> that's the aim right but i think there's a, as i said earlier that's a lot of moving parts and not being from a mechanical or an ai background not from a fashion background <laughs> it's challenging but that's what we want to do you know we want to have a facility where local council affordable facility rather than you know too expensive machinery and then everything goes quite high and then because we got to compete with people just putting all their waste in containers and then shipping it out. So 
So we want to make sure that it has to be competitive. And at the end result, the applications, whatever we create, has to be on a large scale use. Otherwise, you know, it, it's not serving the purpose. Absolutely. Well, yeah, hats off to you. I think it's an area where there's a distinct lack of infrastructure investment in the UK, this whole fibre to fibre textile reprocessing. So, yeah, fingers crossed for that. Fingers crossed, yeah. So final question, which we ask everybody, it's been a really tough few years and it still feels pretty tough, if I'm honest, here in the UK and and globally as well. So what's giving you hope right now, possibly beyond your work or what gets you up in the morning? Personally, the challenge of how do we reduce waste? That's what wakes me up in the morning. It's not the numbers. It's not the brand, where it is and where it's going. But it's like we have created this mess as a human race. I'm sure we should have the answer to it. And where I fit in is understanding textile waste. And that's what wakes you up in the morning to say, okay, let's go and try something new today. And I think that's the pattern. Um, You know, I, I always say that if you're running a business, it cannot be just for numbers. Because after a while, if you achieve the numbers, what's going to keep you going? So it has to be the passion, whether it's either low on the business or high on the business, it will still keep you going on what you really want to achieve and why you're doing it. So what did you make then of what Captor are up to, Rachel? Yeah, really interesting stuff. As you said earlier, some of it is quite niche. So they're turning beautiful fabric offcuts into promotional or gift items. But in short runs of products like branded notebooks, sleeping masks, card wallets, small bags, etc. So it feels like the business model is built around smaller projects. More of a series of one-offs than a longer-term scalable textiles business, I guess. Yeah, but Nish has clearly built some really great partnerships and a reputation for really good quality products too. So it sounds as though lots of his collaborators keep coming back. So he does have that repeat business. And for some quite high profile projects, they're always co-branded. He keeps building the visibility of the brand, but still, it still feels like a business model that's quite hard to plan for. Right, which is probably why their diversification during the pandemic really helped. Selling directly to the public online, so moving away from that business-to-business model into a business-to-consumer one, feels like he's building demand more widely. And also using that charity donations from organizations like the British Red Cross, rather than just offcuts from fashion designers and brands, means that they have a steadier supply of materials too. And just to note that those materials also need to find a home rather than going to incineration or landfill. Exactly. But also the diversification that he's now really focused on. So all of his future aspirations around potentially running a a processing facility for end of life textiles. That's something we know, don't we, that we haven't got enough of in the UK from our own work on the textiles material flow analysis that we'll be launching in the next few weeks. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So there's not enough processing capacity in the UK and Europe specifically for fibre to fibre processing which is the process of turning old fabric into new, either through mechanical or chemical methods of recycling. So I know that while CAPTA were doing their research, which our business transformation team here at ReLondon supported through the Mayor's Green New Deal funding, which is about a year or two ago, they found challenges both technically and out there in the market. To start with, the issue that Nish mentioned in the interview about there being so many fabrics which are made up of a range of fibers, and the fact that 7 out of 10 labels are wrong when describing the composition of fabrics, that was astonishing to me. Yeah, right, me too. I didn't know that people could get away with that, that inaccuracy of labeling. 
But I know that Captor also found that recycled fibres can be a bit of a problem for other markets, like the manufacturers of homewares, like sofa coverings or other home textiles, because those manufacturers want uniformly pale fabrics, presumably so that they can be dyed or printed on. But recycled fibres, of course, are pretty varied. They're pretty colourful. They're not hugely consistent in colour either, I'm guessing. Yeah, it sounds like Nish is really passionate and determined, and Captor are still working on it. So hopefully they can find a way through all these complications. Definitely, yeah. So, Rachel, now we're going to move on to a little featurette that we've done on here before, which is tips for all of us about how we as individuals can help to make our economy more circular. And this time it's all about sustainable ways to get dressed. So what's our first one, Rachel? Yeah, so the first one's simple. There are apparently enough clothes on the planet today to dress the next six generations of people. And we have an average of 31 items in our wardrobe that we haven't worn for more than a year. So the question we should ask is, why not? Pull out some of those old favorites in the back of your closet and try them on. Pair them up with a different belt or a scarf, put a t-shirt underneath or a different jacket over the top. Make the most of every item you own. And don't keep things for the best. Wear them. They'll give you joy. Make it feel like you're wearing new clothing and mean you can mix it up a little more every day. 31 items is a lot, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I've recently dug out an old jumpsuit that I haven't worn for about 18 months. I think I might I might wear it this summer, but without the belt that came with it, probably best not to ask why. Anyway, my next tip is possibly a tiny bit more challenging for some of our listeners. I'm a big fan, personally, of darning and visible mending, but also of patching holes, mainly because I hate shopping. And in particular, I have a huge hatred of shopping for jeans. It is utterly soul-destroying. So I just patch my old ones repeatedly using denim from even older jeans until they're almost more patched than original jean. You can make a real feature of patches with coloured thread and interesting embroidery or what might be easier is you can get those really cool custom-made patches which you can sew on and you can get them from all sorts of places online and from big haberdashery stores and and some of them are even iron-on so you don't even need any sewing skills at all for that but YouTube's full of great videos showing you how to sew how to make and apply patches why not learn how to do it it'll be a good one for a slow Sunday I guess very relaxing very productive yeah an amazing idea and I've got another one for those without the skills or the, the know-how. We know that the best thing you can do is actually just keep wearing your clothes and keep them in use for longer. So if you get to the point where you actually don't genuinely think you're going to wear your clothes anymore, why not swap them and share them with your friends? Or you can use apps like New, which is spelled N-U-W, for instance. You can find more out about that on their website, thenewwardrobe.com. And we'll put their details into the show notes too, along with a few other bits. Thanks, Rachel. My final tip's also super simple. If you need something new, try secondhand. You've heard it from us before. There's more and more really well-managed and curated secondhand shops out there from the really high-end designer vintage stores like Good, for instance, who we've worked with a couple of times before. They've got quite a few shops across London now, but I really love their one on Neil Street in Covent Garden if you need something for a special occasion and you're down that way. But right through to high street charity stores like Crisis, Cancer Research UK, Oxfam, Shelter, etc., And some of those charities actually will be featured in our own Love Not Landfill charity pop-up that's happening again really soon. We're really excited about it. So from the 29th of June to the 2nd of July in Angel Central Shopping Centre in Islington. So if you're in London, come along, snag a beautiful bargain. I know I'm coming down for that. I love Love Not Landfill pop-ups. They're like a treasure trove. 
And also, just a note, we'll be launching our new research into London's consumption and disposal of clothes the day before the pop-up opens. So the report is called London's Fashion Footprint, so keep an eye out for that if you love a little bit of detailed data and want to see the environmental impact of a global city's fashion habits, but also where we might be able to make a difference. Thank you, Rachel. That's going to be a very fascinating read, and we hope a bit of a platform for action here in London and maybe even beyond. Well, what an interesting episode. Lots of questions about the textile supply chain, which we could probably investigate for a whole series of podcasts, given half the chance. Do take a look at the links in the show notes for some of the things we've talked about today, including a case study about CAPTA and what they did with the Green New Deal funding that's been mentioned a couple of times. And thanks, Rachel, so much for co-hosting today. Uh, thanks, Ali. It's been a pleasure. It's been great to have you here. Thank you too to our listeners for tuning into this episode of the Circular Economy Playbook. You can catch up on all our other episodes and hear from more brilliant innovators and activists on this podcast feed. Just subscribe in your favourite app. This is the last podcast episode for a while as we're taking a little bit of a break over the summer. But if you've got any really good ideas about circular economy topics we can cover or people and organisations that you'd really like to hear from, please do get in touch. You can tweet us at relondon underscore UK or head on down to our website, relondon.gov.uk. And there's lots of other ways of getting in contact either directly or through our hello at inbox. Thanks again and see you soon.